Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 259. And this voyage was pretty close to home. I went to Astoria, Queens, where I met up with Chef Joseph Yoon. In addition to being a chef, he's what I would call an educator and an ambassador for eating insects. Now, if you're living in the States and this maybe sounds different to you or maybe a little strange to you, you should know that insects are eaten in many countries, by many cultures all around the world. So whether it's crickets in in Mexico or in Ghana or tarantulas in Cambodia or silkworms in China, Korea, even Indonesia and Brunei, it's common in a lot of places to eat insects. They are a source of protein. They are a sustainable source of protein, uh, an ethical source of protein, but not just protein, also vitamins and minerals. And Joseph, to me, is like the foremost authority on this topic. So I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a long time. I've been following his story, I've been constantly learning from him, seeing these lists of products and interesting people and other chefs that he curates on his social media. And in the time that the pandemic's been going on, the spotlight on him has been growing and growing. He's really utilized this time well to get the message out. And I think that his message coinciding with the cicadas and the cicada blooms, are, it, was, it was good timing and he utilized it really well. So I'm super, super happy to have him on here sharing his personal story and hopefully teaching you a bit more about insects and eating them. I would really recommend you at least... If you're squeamish about this type of thing, at least try it. Well, first, listen to this conversation. But try it. Try something. There was a company that was here in Brooklyn. I think I think they relocated, but they make, uh, what are they? I guess like protein bars kind of, right? They're bars and they're made with cricket flour. And they're delicious. And you would never even know it's cricket. Maybe try something like that and then graduate up to other things. I think if there's anything I've promoted on this podcast, it's going out there and and trying something new. Maybe you don't like it, but maybe you do. So I was so happy to have Joseph on here. Uh, Reach out to him on any of his social media platforms. I will link to all of those. On his website, you can buy, just like I mentioned, I believe cricket powder and some other items, And uh, he's just, he's a fascinating watch because he's constantly putting out new information because he's constantly learning. And I'm really inspired time and time again by people that I have on the podcast who started out doing a certain type of work or were living a certain type of way and they were unhappy with it and they changed it and they changed it in a monumental way. I know that it's not easy to do that. I don't want to come out here and be like, wow, you can change your life by snapping your fingers. That's definitely a lie. But I wanted to to give you a a little anecdote here before we move on to the conversation with Joseph. I overheard a conversation yesterday, which was Tuesday, and somebody was talking to their colleague and they said, man, Tuesdays, they're, they're actually worse than Mondays. I have less energy on Tuesday because it's like, oh, the weekend's so far away. Now, Wednesdays, 
They're a little better because I'm like, I'm halfway there. But Thursdays, oh, it's just a tease. Like I'm almost at Friday, but I'm not there yet. And then finally I get to Friday. And maybe I'm like overblowing how I interpreted that conversation. But man, that was like, that was really depressing to hear that. And if I'm honest with you, like I have felt that way before too. And I think a lot of people have. You're kind of just caught up in this cycle where you're just going day to day, just living, but not living, just kind of getting through the work week. And I, I can promise you as now I'm getting older, like if you start out that way with that mindset at 24, 25, you wake up and you're 35 and you'll wake up and you're 45 and time is just gone. So hopefully you can listen to someone like Joseph and get inspired or even me. This podcast, having these conversations in a very selfish way, I get to talk to incredible people from all around the world. And a lot of them I end up being friends with after it. And that has radically changed my life. I found something that really makes me happy. So even if the thing that you try or the thing that you're seeking is not something that brings you financial success, monetary gain, prestige, if it's something that just makes you happy, try it. If it's a new skill, it's not going to be easy. Just like finding a way to financial freedom or happiness or success is not going to be easy. But if you put in the time and if you have the passion and if you're good to people, it could happen. So I connect with that aspect of Joseph's story. I'll stop babbling. I know you want me to, to shut up here. And I'll say, enjoy this conversation with Joseph Yoon. Well, first of all, Joseph, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a long time coming, so it, it feels really great to to be here and to get to meet you and to to pick your brain for a little while. So thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm so excited to be here, and uh, it has indeed been a long time coming. Yeah. I, so I went back through because we've got this long email chain, and I talked to you right before the pandemic started. Wow. I think you actually were supposed to maybe go to like San Diego or something. Um, and then the world shut down and we went into lockdown and all this stuff. So we date back to then. So it's, it's, it's been incredible actually during that time, being able to watch you and your progression and what you've been able to do. It, it, it gives me hope for myself and, and for other people that, that hard work, uh, and persistence pay off. So it's, it's been cool. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it, it is really fascinating to hear you mention how long ago we actually started talking because it seems like an entirely different world. Mm. And if you think about it, it really is. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. And so to think about all the growth and transformation, and if you'll allow me, the metamorphosis mm -hmm. of what I've experienced during that time, it, it's really been a life-changing period of time for me and something that, I, that I'm still embracing and really grateful to, to have found this space 
to share what I'm doing. And so I'm really grateful for you for having an interest in, in uh, you know, having me on your podcast as well. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So actually, so after we talked and then we were like, all right, we have to put this on hold. Uh, my partner and I, we, we lived together and we were just like crushing episodes of Chopped. So she would vote for someone. It's like, you get your first four people and she'd be like, all right, I think that person's going to win. And I would say, I think that person's going to win. Like based on only that initial introduction. And we're watching like a week after I was talking to him. I'm like, I think I was just talking to that guy. And she's like, no way. So I'm like, okay, I have to vote for him, of course. Um, so that was incredible too. I didn't even know that when I was talking to you. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's so fascinating just how many things there are and what media piece or journal piece or science magazine or food posts will mm. connect someone to the work that I'm doing. And what I've realized is that no matter how big in scope something may appear, like, oh, the New York Times, amazing. Let me hang up my coat now. Mm. But it's just like that will reach that demographic, that section of people and be gone. Like that that's just the, the nature of the news and everything. And so for me, something that I realized very early on working with Edible Insects is that there's no one piece that's going to come out. There's no one chef or one event that will change a generational mindset globally. Mm. And so it's just going to require consistency, inclusiveness, and just keep going. Mm. And so I've just been really thankful that like I, I have this energy to have transformed the period of time during COVID, where it's like, I am a really outgoing and social person. And during the, the beginning part of the quarantine of COVID was like really challenging for me, as it was for a lot of people. But somehow to look inward, lean on my friends and family for like emotional support and know that they're there for me. And then to go like, okay, I, all my grants and funding have been canceled. I have no sources of income, but I have this great conviction and belief and desire to research edible insects. Can I actually, as a lifelong omnivore, give up meat and seafood and live happily during quarantine, subsiding on a vegetarian-based diet bolstered by insect protein. What a fascinating project to try to just tackle on and like all by, you know, by myself. And it's like, oh, I'm kind of lonely or I'm going to sad eat by myself. And to find myself eating like fermented insect kimchi with tofu as like my food, not like you know, as like my comfort food, really. Mm. And so just like, it, it's really, I, I actually haven't talked about like COVID life in a in really long time. So I think a lot of us have been trying to put it behind us. And I, I'm happy if you want to move move on or progress from here. But it's really interesting to reflect back because I haven't talked about the beginning of COVID and quarantine really in, in, in probably over a year, I think now. Yeah, I went through some wild swings too. In the very beginning, I was in a job that I hated, like really hated. So we went remote and that was great for me. And I was honestly like thriving because everyone was stuck at home. 
I was able to connect with people through the podcast who I never would have been able to before because they're like, all right, fine, I'll hop on a Zoom with someone. I kind of hate doing Zoom. I like the in-person better, but yeah. it was the only option. But yeah, it's I've seen some people either really thrive and find a way to adapt or really kind of crumble and, and find this to be a super difficult time, which is just being extended and extended. So yeah, it is... It, it gives me hope like beyond myself when I see people like you who've been able to sort of harness the time and the energy and adapt to the circumstances and turn it into something really great. Thank you. You know, nor do I think it's mutually exclusive of one another because there were times where I could have felt on top of the world mm. and then crashing down to the depths of like, just real of like utter like depression all seemingly within the same week. Mm. And, and just like the highs of like, oh, I got to see my friends on Zoom, someone's birthday. And then like, oh, I've been alone and haven't seen a single person for months now. And just like being able to navigate that and find ways to be inclusive, not to let people's triggers like get to you or try to trigger other people, learn how to communicate and be more empathetic. These are all tools that are fundamental to my work as an edible insect ambassador. Mm. And so I found that during this time in like this COVID time period, however we're going to refer to this eventually, it, it really, there's so many learning lessons for me. And I also feel like I've been so... I, I feel like I'm a constant student, mm. perpetually learning. And it's like the more I learn and the more I know, I feel like the more I can listen. And it's been a really fascinating thing because I used to just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and you can probably tell I still love talking. No, that's a good thing. <laughs> but, I, but at the same time, I've really found great space, especially around, among students when I work at universities and to like be able to listen to these kids who are so excited to share what they know. And so it, it's been a really great balance and juxtaposition of like being really talkative and really loving to learn and listen to others as well. Mm. In the chicken and the egg scenario, like the which came first, um, you as, as a cook and a chef versus your interest in like the insect world, were you first cooking? Yes. Uh, well, I will, okay, I'll, I'll admit something to you that no one has asked me and you didn't ask me either, but I'll just volunteer this. Cool. My only real engagement with insects when I was younger was as a kid. And as a lot of boys will do, like we love to experiment with nature and collect insects and very often as a kid, uh, kill insects to mm. see like what what that's like and like, oh, there's slugs in my mom's garden. Let me salt them. And or like, oh, they're ants. Let me like destroy this like ant hill because you're a kid and you're exploring. And, I, you know, you don't have the sensitivities of as I do now of their life and the, 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 the preciousness of their life. Mm. And so that was really my experience with insects. And besides like hating mosquitoes because they love my sweet Korean blood. <laughs> Um, and, you know, just I never really had this like great affinity towards insects. However, cooking, I have 
always had a very close connection with food. As a Korean American, food is at the center of how Koreans show love. My grandparents, my parents, my aunts and uncles, like they would express their love through food. And it's like, I would eat so much food and they'd be like, no, you have to eat more. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I love you too. And so we would just keep eating. And it was such an interesting transformation for me as the male boy in the family to try to enter the kitchen, which was dominated by my grandmother, my mom, and my aunts. Mm. And I remember when I started, it was like beginning of college, I'd go in, or like high school, end of high school, beginning of college, I'd go in the kitchen wanting to cook, and they'd be like, you know, oh, what's the what's the boy doing in the kitchen sort of vibe. So they'd like kind of give me a side dish to like make off to the side. And as I just show more and more interest and capability and desire to learn, they increasingly gave me like a more important dish. Maybe like, okay, maybe you can make the entree. Then like they started accepting me in the kitchen. And what I found like was one of the most important learning lessons for me in sharing this love of food in the kitchen with my family. Beyond learning about food and the arts, something that I learned and absorbed through osmosis is the true joy of sharing mm. and of service. My family, the, the woman would be in the kitchen like they'd serve, put all the food out. And then when everyone sat down and started eating, they'd still be in the kitchen frying things up and getting things to the perfect temperature to continue sharing food with everyone as they ate. They would eat standing up and laughing and just have this like joy of like true service. And for me, that's been fundamental to do what I do. And I almost view a lot of the work I do as one of like a public servant, something where like I'm not really being funded by a lot of money, but I have this like great joy in my heart to do what I do. I feel grateful for any grant or funding that I receive. And it is like, you know, I, I feel so grateful to be able to share this work and I feel so grateful to when I'm able to serve food to people and, and share these ideas. And so it's, um, you know, that, that's something that, that, I, that I really, really embrace and cherish for the time that I was able to, to, to share in the kitchen with, like, with, my, grand, my, with my late grandmother and, and the woman in my family. It's really interesting you say that. So I've been thinking a lot lately about like, the power in feeding people. And I think it's something that we lose out on if, I don't know, if we live in New York City and we work 10 hours a day and we're racing from thing to thing and just sort of like shoveling food into our face. I mentioned to you before we started recording that uh, recently in, I was in Iceland and we stayed with a friend of my girlfriend's and she kept us fed. And I remember like the, the, when we got there... We really, I love your friend, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because she's she's a traveler and she knows, um, and like a very nurturing person. But we did not research the trip well, so we got to Iceland like during the high peak season of tourism. No cars left. We took a bus to a town, hoping that a bus would get us from that town to her place. Yeah, just, and the 
the peninsula and the, her town's a little fishing village called uh, Stickishwarmer. And there was no bus from the second city. So we hitchhiked, which is like quite common there. But we were out all day starving. And you get there and like she's just ready with like a giant bowl of homemade curry that she made. And it, I, maybe if maybe some people think that maybe sounds cheesy, but that is a very power, powerful thing. And like we're forgetting that you're literally giving someone life and sustenance. Yeah. You're, keep, you're feeding someone. You know, so I vibe with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I graduated college, I bought a one-way ticket to Europe with my frame pack, yes. a backpack, and my saxophone. And everyone's like, WTF, what, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to return a saxophone star. Whoa. And, I, and so I uh, hitchhiked for like half a year. And I, I was up in up in Denmark and the Netherlands. And then I started hitchhiking as the weather got colder. I started migrating down south and ended up living in uh, Valencia, Spain for a year. Um, but I thought those that th- th- those are bygone times of hi- hitchhiking. So I love hearing yeah. <laughs> that you are still hitchhiking this year, 20 years after I did it, like when, when I was in Europe. I mean, it was really awesome to hear that. That's, that's great. Did you pick up anything... Uh, culinary when you were traveling through Europe, like tools well, of the trade? I lived in uh, Germany for four years when oh. I was a kid. My dad uh, is, he's a physician, but he was, he was uh, in the U.S. military. So when I was 10 to 14, I actually lived in Würzburg, Germany. Oh. And my mom would learn all this amazing, authentic European food. And I know European is like saying like, oh God, there's so much, but we would, she would literally go away for like a weekend and like go to like an Italian cooking class and French, you know, German cook. And she would just learn so much food. And so when I lived in, in Europe, I mean, I think more than learning out of like a kitchen or from a chef per se, it was through the learning of eating and food culture, food customs how they eat, the manner in which they prepare food. And and living in Spain, I would ask my friends and, you know, I would just see them with like a jamón serrano, like a leg of ham, you know, uh, on their counter, like every single <laughs> home. I was like, what is this thing? I love it. And, and you know, and so like I, I, that was actually one of the things I missed upon returning to, 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 to America is like, I don't have a Hamon Serrano on my kitchen counter anymore. Whatever will I snack on now? Um, so, yeah, no, I, I feel like I, there, there was so much to learn, and I, and I really loved, uh, loved every minute of, of being able to be in, be in Europe. That's amazing. When I look at your photos, um, I don't know, like, much about the world of high-end cooking, but I'm like, that looks like high-end cooking. Like, this could be in, a, I don't know, like a Michelin-starred, Restaurant, like, did you go through like a classically a classically trained program or something like that? No, I, I you know, you're. I think that's very kind and generous of you to say, but I, 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 I know that that's not the level that that I cook at. Um, I, I have such great respect for chefs, and I, I would say I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm definitely a good cook. I'm an excellent chef. I can lead and execute large-scale operations with large kitchen teams. and um, But as far as like the gastronomy and the culinary arts, I would say I'm definitely above average. 
But when I compare myself to the geniuses and the artwork and mastery of the true like chefs that are out there, I will humbly like respectfully take my place in that in that line way <laughs> far below them. And I'm happy to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I purport to being something that I'm not or I don't have a clear understanding of where I fit in, my value is diminished, right? Because like if it, it'd be like me putting a Band-Aid on someone and saying like, I'm, call me Dr. Yoon, mm. right? And a lot of people have that misconception that, oh, look, here, I, I'm going to put some bugs on my dish and call me a chef. I'm a chef. And it's to a detriment of our industry, actually, that so many people would identify as chefs without having any true work or leadership skills in the kitchen. Mm. And so for me, I learned, I just started cooking at a young age, just out of pure love. And I never thought I'd be cooking professionally. Mm. And when I returned from Europe, I started working in the music industry. And I feel so fortunate because I am a man of passion and I have followed my heart and I am so grateful that upon graduating college, I traveled to Europe and lived my dream, come back and it's like, all right, I want to work in the music industry. I started my own management company in 2002 and I, and I ran an artist management company for over a dozen years. And during that time, I got burnt out of working in, in, in the music industry, it was like really difficult and challenging. And I was just like, I need to do something I love again. I just need to do something I love. And so I was like, let me do a pop-up. And this is in 2011. But now pop everyone knows what a pop-up mm. is. In 2011, <laughs> I would go to my bars that I would hang out and I'd be like, hey, can I do a pop-up? They're like, what's that? I'm like, I'll come and bring everything I need to serve food at your bar and, uh, you know, we'll get more people and get them hungry and thirsty. They'll eat more, drink more. And so all these bars are like, that sounds great to me. What do we have to do? I'm like, mm, pretty much nothing. I'll bring everything I need. If you have a table, maybe I can use a table. And so amazingly, out of that experience, it gave me life, gave me this passion. And I'm, I was able to get and win over huge clients as a result of that and start shifting to become a private chef and caterer. And I've been very fortunate to learn from a lot of people. I I would start working at my friends' kitchens and and just like learn as much as I could. And because cooking at home and making good food, a chef does not make. Mm. You need to like, I, 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 I would cater weddings in the middle of a field with no water, no electricity, no kitchen, and serve like 10 course meals, right? It's like, those are the skills and assets. Like there are so many people that can cook. And and so for me to really feel like I earned my title as a chef was when I really started learning how to execute and lead large kitchen teams to execute my culinary vision to be able to serve 10 course tastings for thousands of people, right? And, and so that's when I was like, okay, I, I, I do feel like I've earned this title, even though I, I am not a, a trained chef, uh, I did not go to culinary school. At that time in 2011, when you were doing pop-ups, were you cooking with insects yet? Okay, no. So, all right. So I was, I was a voracious omnivore mm. and a lot of my friends- 
during the that time in like the teens of the of the of the millennium, like Joseph, you can't eat that much meat. And I'm like, um, <laughs> yes, I can. Watch me. <laughs> and I would eat like five to six meals a day, and they would all have meat um, at every meal. And I, I just, I, I was, I, I guess I've been blessed with like a relatively fast metabolism. And it was five years ago now when I was approached by Miru Kim. She's an artist that I loved. Hmm. And she approached me and asked if I would cook insects for an art project with her. And I immediately said yes, because I just adore her artwork and her vision as an artist. So I said yes, not knowing a single thing about cooking with insects. I've eaten the the word the the gusano worm the the gusano that well gusano is the word for worm in Spanish, but the, I've eaten the the mezcal worms. I've eaten grasshoppers and crickets and maybe a scorpion at the bottom of a mezcal bottle. But I didn't really eat like cook meals with insects, and so I. Go on the old www. I look up edible insects, and I was blown away because the United Nations FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization, issued a report in 2013, "Edible Insects: Future Prospects for Food and Feed Security," and in this report they address food security and sustainability. How are we going to feed the world's burgeoning population? estimated to grow to 9.5 billion people by the year 2050, how are we going to sustainably create the food and without depleting our, our natural resources? And in this report, they endorse edible insects. And I got to say, I don't want to be a walking cliche, but I fell into the wormhole and the rest is history. Like I really, it spoke to me on such an incredible level. It the motivation and inspiration to know that the work I am doing helps to find sustainable forms of, of protein for the future. But then to consider that there are people that will hate me just for the sheer fact of what I do and attack me, either in person or virtually, where people will come up and, and swear to me in my face and tell me to get the F out of here. Like, what are you doing? Like, we don't eat that. Like, take that food back to China. I'm Korean, but you know. And, and people would say these like things to me. And and what I, what I realized is that there are such great learning opportunities here. In order for me to succeed, I can't be triggered by the hostility that people feel towards me but I will sincerely try to kill them with kindness, to approach them and say, I understand how you can be so disturbed by this. And if you have the interest, I'm happy to share with you why I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm. There's a great reason for this. And so I, I, I've just felt like there are, there are so many opportunities to not only learn about new foods and introduce new cultures and ideas, but especially in today's day and climate and age where there is so much divisiveness and so much like hatred. And if someone thinks differently, you're going to cancel them. And so for me to like approach someone that, that literally 
starts by attacking me and to be able to like open my arms and and still welcome them genuinely I think has been like a really wonderful experience for me to see what that does for people and how it disarms them and most of the time people just kind of like walk away and kind of do their thing but there are times where people will literally allow for this growth and change to know what why why should we even bother how do you do it and then to see this like light bulb go off in people's minds and for them to like go from like utter disgust and anger and viscerally like expressing their disdain to one of acceptance conquering their fear and transformation having that relationship as a chef with a diner is just something that is so precious and so amazing to be a part of all right i have that was beautiful i have so many questions like branching out like 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 an octopus right now i know i i put a lot in there i no, it is, ramble on it's much. wonderful and <laughs> yeah. i'm i'm trying to you'll notice i can go on these long unorganized tangents so i'm trying to like keep things organized in my head um there are cultures and and nations and people all around the world that eat insects eat bugs um and if i'm to, just to get terminology correct like a bug technically is an insect right Yes, it'd it, it be kind of like saying whiskey is a type of alcohol. A bug is a type of an insect, but in the vernacular, I use a word bug generically to encompass arachnids and, uh, you know, and, and also insects, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so that initial reaction by people, um, and maybe I'm asking you to sort of like play psychologist, but you have far more experience with this than me. But that initial reaction where people are like, no, I'm thinking maybe that's a combination of reasons, like one cultural, maybe even like class-based, even if people don't realize it. Um, but then also like maybe is there like a long, deep-seated like biological imperative to not want to eat insects because people think that they're poisonous or dangerous or something like that? Like do you have some sort of understanding why – initially people are so freaked out by that? I think that the main reason why Americans are disgusted by the idea of eating insects is because they associate insects in the pejorative. They bite you in the summer. Mm. They ruin your crops. They're disgusting to have in your house. And so we tend to think of them in terms of the pejorative. And when we think of like the positive aspects, like, oh, they're pollinators, Oh, they provide silk. Oh, they there. And then when we think about the positives, it increases their value for humanity because we like to commoditize things and we and we like to exploit things. Unfortunately, as a human race, and so when we increase the value of insects, then we have a greater appreciation for them. So, the great challenge that I have is how do we transform the perception? insects being disgusting to edible insects and redefining and reimagining and separating from insects as pests to edible insects, something that's delicious, nutrient dense, 
and sustainable. Mm. So it's just like really smart. And what people have said in marketing terms, you need seven points of engagement to adopt a new idea. And so for me, it's like, that's why I don't try to beat down the rhetoric of environmentalism and sustainability as like, eat bogs to save the world. Yes, that's a personal motivation for me, but I don't like to beat down that rhetoric on top of people's heads. The idea of gastronomy and eating new foods and novel foods, that might also get to a certain demographic of people, but you're also, I also have to account for this large majority of people where the idea of sustainable eating or eating novel foods will only reach a small percentage of people. So for me to increase the points of engagement, I love being on podcasts such mm. as yours. And I love to work in an interdisciplinary manner where I'm able to work with musicians, with artists, with writers, and just start integrating the idea of eating insects culturally so that we can like remove that veil of like, wow, what, what is that? And the more and more we're able to like integrate what we're doing successfully in culture, in media, the more people are like, oh yeah, I remember I heard that podcast, huh? Timothy Vetter's podcast. And I saw that piece in the New York Times and on NPR. And I, I saw him cooking with JVN and, and Padma Lashmi. And, you know, just it allows us more and more visibility to be able to evolve the conversation. And when given the opportunity for someone to say, I didn't think I would want to try eating an insect, but now that I saw it so much and I realized that it's sustainable and can be delicious and that's nutrient dense, I'm going to give it a try. Mm. And so that, that's what we try to do to like just really try to transform the mindset of individuals on a global generational perspective. Yeah, that's super interesting because I was thinking like it must be a little bit difficult in getting your message out there and that, you know, some people are in the sort of media age that we're in going to click on something if they do think it's like a sensationalized thing, that it's something different or unique, um, sort of balancing that with, well, this is the actual practical side of things. Uh, this is why it can do some good for the world. This is, this is a, a tangent. I know I'm trying to like harness in my head right now, but I'm going to connect this to travel a bit. For major the majority of Americans, it, it is very easy to get protein and get animal protein. You go to the supermarket and like pretty much every type of like mainstream animal that we've normalized eating is there in every single variety of cut. And despite rising prices, you can go and you can purchase it. If you get out into the world uh, and really travel, um, do real traveling, you will see that there are many places where meat is hard to come by, either because it's too expensive or because certain animals don't exist in that place. Um, you know, for an animal to get on your plate, it has to be shipped. Uh, these, are, these are actually pretty complicated systems. And I, I, you know, I also was someone who gravitated towards the sensational when I first started traveling like 10 years ago. And I, you know, I ate jellyfish because that sounded really wild to me. Uh, I love jellyfish, by the way. For sure. But yeah. it, it very quickly became apparent to me that like, well, jellyfish isn't eaten because people think it's something 
unique and bizarre. <laughs> it's eaten because it's accessible in certain places. And so I, I very quickly got embarrassed and ashamed of that attitude where I was like, well, I want to eat things that look wild because people will think that's very cool. Um, so I stopped doing that. But now when I travel and I'm so fortunate to meet people through the podcast or just through the way that I travel and they cook for me, I am eating things that people might find to be different and unique. And, and I don't mean this badly, but some people might think are even bizarre because it's what people are offering me. So, and I promise I'll wrap this up soon, but, um, you know, when the pandemic started happening and stuff like that, people were like, well, bat, who would eat a bat? That's so, that's so crazy. And I ate a bat. And to me, I had eaten a bat not too long before that. And it's because it was offered to me in a place in Indonesia. And I understand, again, it seems like because of, of the stories we tell in the movies we watch that bats are very scary things, they're vampires and all this stuff. Maybe that's the connection. But yeah, like that's what I was offered. Or yeah, I had pig brain in the Philippines because that's what I was offered when I was hanging out with a family in Cebu City. It's protein. It's nutrient dense. It's important for people to get that. Um and so I say all this and go on this long tangent to say that, yeah, maybe in some places that is the protein that is available at the time and is maybe easier to procure and abundant. And so historically, people are going to eat it because they need to get protein. And actually, it's full of vitamins as well and some other things. So I think that it won't seem so different to people um, if they do go out into the world and experience, you know, food cultures in other places. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's really interesting to consider that 80% of the world's nations eats insects, mm. not out of desperation, but because it's a part of the regular lifestyle. Mm. It's part of the, the food that they eat. And for me, I've always been very open to eating food respectfully, where if I know that it's eaten by a friend or the family or a culture, I will, even if I have like a kind of like, oh, that's a little peculiar, I'd still be very interested in trying it with somebody. And it gives us an, an opportunity to learn and experience something from across the globe to try this new food. And when you think about what we're currently eating today, there are so many weird things that have been normalized. I mean, we could start with like cheese, which is mold or fungus, or like the idea of fermented foods that needs bacteria for its growth, of oysters that filter hundreds of gallons of filthy water. And if you think about when you go to a sushi restaurant and you get a spider roll, why are, why are they calling it a spider roll, not a crab roll when it's a soft shell crab, mm. right? There are all these ideas of what is normal and what we have come to accept. And so I really believe it's going to be a matter of time, one of education, and one where we're seeing the progress of edible insects hyper-accelerated over the past few years from the collective work that we've done as an industry to really transform the minds see the industry exploding like never before. And it will give us an opportunity to, to share not only this new idea, 
but the fact that it's actually something that is an ancient practice mm. and allow for us to adopt new ideas and not take such a like a merocentric view on food because food is a status symbol. Mm. You think about going to a wedding or big celebrations and you think about, oh, we got this great filet mignon and the lobster. And, you know, you think about the, the foods that you associate with like comfort and status and wealth. And this will give us an opportunity to expand that conversation and to hopefully allow for children at a young age to not have the same stigmas that adults in America currently have. And to that, I'm so grateful to be in conversations with New York City's Department of Ed STEM program to begin exploring the possibility of developing curriculum with uh, 4-H's in-home program to also develop these ideas to really be able to start implementing these ideas in a manner where we can quite simply introduce it as food. Mm. Yes, there are insects out in the field. Yes, there are fish in the ocean, the same that we eat and different that we, you know, it's just like giving people the right perspective to understand and understand and appreciate that. Yes, there are insects on the ground, but those are not the insects that we're eating. We're farming and harvesting insects at FDA approved facilities specifically for human consumption. It's not like picking up a roadkill when there's a dead squirrel on the street or mm. something. When I was in Cambodia, um, I didn't try it. And now I have like great regrets about that. But you could get, um, I think it was like just fried in oil, but like a whole tarantula. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Which I've heard actually tastes like crab. Yeah. Soft shell crab. About? Okay. I mean, that's what I, that, that, I, the fact that, it's called a spider roll and they use soft shell crab. It, the, the irony of that <laughs> yeah. like, just kills me. <laughs> um, so I was thinking like probably if you do want to open someone up to this world, that might not be the first thing, especially Americans who grow up like very fearful of spiders. Um, so I was curious if there's like a gateway bug, right? And mm-hmm. Also, if if you think it makes sense to, in cooking or in, in the cooking that you do, try to hide it or is it more in normalizing it and saying, no, here, here's the ingredient, here's the silkworm. Um, in all its glory, it's not ground up, it's right there. You know, you asked like the age old question and really one of the fundamental questions. First one, is there a gateway bug? Second, like, is it better to hide or show the insect if you're going to eat it? And I got a disappointing answer for you (laughs) is that there is no silver bullet, which will unequivocally transform a generational mindset worldwide. Mm. And so that's why for us, we cook with crickets, cicadas, black ants, mealworms, scorpions, grasshoppers. We use a ton of different insects. We hide them in a lot of baking that we do, even in our savory foods by using insect powders Mm. in our soups to create soup socks. And other times we highlight it and love to show it and showcase it front and center so people can see it and and appreciate what it is they're eating. I think most people think that 
the hidden method will be the successful way. But most of the diners that we've come across, we've had tens of thousands of people across America at universities, at museums, at conferences and festivals. A lot of people, they, it's almost like 50 50. Hmm. They're like, if I'm going to eat a bug, I want to see it. All right. And then other people are like, there's no way I don't want to see it. You got to hide it from me. But what I found fascinating is that people who come, like, they're like, okay, let me eat the hidden version, like some cricket bread or something. And they'll try it. And like for me, one of the classic dishes I like to serve is a cricket gougere. It's like a cheese puff with cricket powder. Oh. And they take a bite and they expect it to taste disgusting. They have no idea what an insect tastes like. But because of their mental association of insects, they like, I see them squinting. They take a little bite, like cautiously. <laughs> and then they chew. They're like, oh, it tastes like food. They take the whole thing. And a lot of times they put it in their whole mouth. It's like a small bite-sized thing. And they start chewing it, and they're like, "Huh, actually, the taste that that I can't even really taste it." I'm like, "Yeah, no, it tastes probably like food, like a cheese puff." And for me, I will taste it immediately, but because they don't know what they're trying to taste, it's mm. like they they don't they can't identify it. And what is fascinating is that unknowingly, unbeknownst to them, I'm putting out like a little reel and reeling them in because they're like, "Okay, chef." I'm ready for the next dish. Give me something where I can taste it, the bug a little bit more. Uh. And then they might taste like another dish. And before you know it, like a lot of my events, I have 10, 12 tasting dishes for the progressive tasting for people. And a lot of times I to witness them progress up to a point where they're like looking at a scorpion. And when they came in, they like freaked out. They'd be like, I saw the scorpion. I was like, no way I would ever eat it. But now to look this thing in the eye and like eat this scorpion, it goes back to that idea of transformation and like uh, giving people the space to like grow through the process of our meal, conquer their fear and like be walk out. And I see this like sense of pride where they're like, Honey, look, I, did you see what I did? I ate that scorpion. I ate that wasp. You know how I always been scared of wasp my whole life. And, you know, and to see that sense of pride and just this growth and to see them walk out where they would not even consider eating a single insect upon arriving and to see them go through the whole tasting and grow and become what I like to think of as like a junior bug ambassador, mm. like, I know that they're going to go out there like, hey, I eat bugs. Yeah, they're good. They taste good. They taste like normal. And hopefully when as more products be become available at groceries, they'll, you know, they'll be among the first adopters to like support the industry and start continue buying it and hopefully, uh, you know, cooking at home as well. For it to be sold commercially, do the insects like in essence have to be farmed? So the FDA has a has a clause where it states that if something is reared specifically for the purpose of human consumption, okay. if it's handled at an FDA-approved facility and the scientific name is on the packaging, that it can be sold as food. And so we meet all those criteria for the insects that we procure and that we, that we do and that the industry shares. And so the, those are the criteria. 
the EU has different legislation that they're they're jumping over hurdles. They just approved mealworms as as a food source, um, and crickets were accepted in the UK. The UK is going through like a whole battle right now on what's acceptable. Um, but you know, we're, does the US need more legislation to earn the confidence of big vendors and food suppliers and distributors to like put more money into this? Um, you know, we're, we're getting there. The USDA and the USAID, USAID put a request for information to learn more about insect agriculture and, mm. and the industry. The fact that we're getting to that point, the fact that I've personally received grants from Purdue University, Montana State, University of Wisconsin at Madison, and you think of the states that I'm naming right now, it's like pork and cattle country. It's like, why would they be bringing someone in to talk about alternative forms of protein? And I am just encouraged by this that the the idea that I think that frightens people is that they think we want to take away your meat. But that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. We want to add to your diet and give you substitutions and things for you to be able to add as a complement to what you're already exists, to what you're eating. Mm -hmm. And also the idea that like, okay, if, if, cause that's a big thing. People think like, oh, you want to take away all our meat and just have us eat bugs. It's like, no, that we, no one ever said that. If you eat duck for the first time, does that mean that you're going to give up beef and chicken? People don't even think like that, right? right? So they think in terms of extremes when it comes to insects because of the sheer nature of how they kind of imagine, psychologically imagine the insects. And so those are the walls that we're breaking down. And when I tell people like, listen, even if you were to eat insect protein once a week, like Meatless Monday, even that would have an impact on the environment. Hmm. And like these, and, and I just love dropping these like little nuggets for people where it's like, okay, so we don't have to eat it every day. You don't want us to give up all the other food that we're eating. And you're saying even once a week would be, would be like meaningful. And what I love is this idea that I'm able to share with students and on podcasts and everything is that, yes, our lifestyle choices can have an impact globally. Sometimes you'd be like, Joseph, I, I don't believe in voting. I don't believe that my diet will change the environment or anything. And I emphatically urge people to squanch those ideas and empower yourself to believe and have conviction in your ability to make change, be a part of something bigger than just yourself by the simple act of being conscientious and like, where does your clothes come from? What kind of food are you eating? How connected are you to like the greater world and believing that these lifestyle choices make a huge difference? It's very interesting to think of what aspects of change people are resistant to and why. Because everything is constantly changing around us. Like we're just getting steamrolled by like the constant changes in technology that we're like kind of powerless to to stop or to alter, um, yet we would be resistant to potentially trying a new food, food source, which is uh, strange 
to me, I guess, when, when I think about it. Um, I know you didn't want to like solely focus on sustainability, but I do think it's important that we at least mention uh, what makes eating insects uh, or, or having insects as a food source, how is that sustainable? Yeah. So the current manner in which we are farming, uh, rearing the husbandry of, of animals and livestock is not sustainable. The amount of water that's required to, to feed these animals over the course of their lives and to clean the amount of feed that's necessary. You think about like raising Amazonian rainforests to like grow soy farms and then ship up to up to America, all over the world for animals to eat. These are broken ideas. And while it may have worked at one point as the the population increases, like it's increasingly becoming just so clear that we will not be able to sustain this manner of of, of providing protein in this manner. The amount of greenhouse gas emissions that's emitted from, from the cattle industry. And so why are bugs sustainable, eating insects sustainable? It's because they require a fraction of the resources to create an equivalent amount of protein, a fraction of the land, fraction of the feed, fraction of the land resources, fraction of the water. And they also emit a just a minute fraction of the greenhouse gas emissions as well. Mm. So for all those reasons, they're sustainable. The fact that they're nutrient dense, when I mentioned that they're nutrient dense, they're packed with macronutrients, they're, they're high in protein. It could be anywhere from like 50 to 80% of its weight in protein, which is amazing compared to a far lower nutritional value. They're low in carbs, low in fat, but they're also packed with micronutrients. They have different, depending on the insect, they have different vitamins, minerals, and they also, there's a research done out of UW-Madison where they found that they're, they're exploring, like, can you eat too much? Is there a negative effect of eating too much cricket protein? And what they found is that thus far in the preliminary research, no, but there's a really beneficial prebiotic gut health when you mm. eat the, from the chitin uh, that's found in, in, the, in the cricket. So... Uh, where so far we're just continuously finding more and more benefits as we do more research around insect agriculture and insect protein. You mentioned soy and factory farm cattle. I'll also throw corn in there. Those are major, powerful uh, industries. Not to get too conspiratorial, but um, you know. Oftentimes, change occurs when like there's money to be made. Um, do you, do you feel like maybe you're you're up against that at all um, in terms of those industries like maybe not wanting a new sustainable source of food? Oh yeah, I mean I, I think we already have sustainable forms of like energy out there that meet a great deal of resistance from mm. oil and coal. Good point. And so I think the same thing happens. And, you know, that's the reason why I try to be careful about being critical is that I'm not trying to pit us against them. I'm just trying to shed light that, okay, I don't, I'm not expecting us to give up the cattle beef industry, but maybe we don't need as much of it being wasted and thrown away 
and poorly met. We need better distribution. But we also just, maybe we can like not start more farms that are like grown this manner and look at alternative ways that we can look at, at farming that's sustainable. Um, when I was at Montana State, I remember a, a student asked me at, at, at a conference that, we, that, that was held, he was like, um, what am I supposed to tell my, my family? We're like three, third generation or fourth generation cattle farmers, uh, cattle ranchers. What, what, what should I talk to them about or how should I address like eating insects? I'm like, well, do you eat beef every day? He's like, no. I'm like, do you eat beef every meal? He's like, no. I'm like, well, that gives you a lot of room to eat other foods, right? And so we're, I, still, I support your family mm. raising cattle. I support them and I, I, I wish them the best. But even they could have an impact in what they eat how they approach this to to be able to 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 have a better footprint your your personal carbon footprint you know you can reduce your personal impact by what you eat and so i you know it's like it's just like really trying to be as inclusive as possible and not ostracize people or like you know it, it sometimes it's hard for me when people are climate change deniers that's where i get a little uh put on edge a little bit but i try to understand and not talk down to people ever um and so I, I just really try to find a connecting point where we can speak and be able to share ideas. And I try my best to like meet people from their perspective and show that I'm willing to listen and hear what they're saying if they will give me a modicum of space for me to share what I'm saying and uh, to reply to what they think as well. Mm. I've never hunted myself, but I'm actually becoming more and more open to the idea mostly because of factory farming and like the, the horrific conditions in which I see animals living. And, um, I do see hunting as hunting for food, for sustenance, using the whole animal as uh, a more ethical choice in getting meat. Um, often I'm like, working out ideas. So maybe two years ago when I was recording, I wouldn't have been open to the idea, but, um, I see it, like I mentioned as, as a far more ethical and even sustainable way to get food. Do you envision, um, there would be a time maybe when it is more normalized that people are eating insects, that people would go and like procure their own food source? Well, that that's challenging because there has to be a responsible manner in which to do it. Mm. And because of the risk of pathogens and contaminants, and it, it's difficult. And to support the industry, I love to like buy responsibly, find brands that I love and support them and shine a spotlight on them. Instead of thinking like, oh, let me go to the park and where they might be spraying pesticides and, and eat uh. some of the bugs there. Now, when the, when the locust swarms were happening in Africa and Asia last year or two years ago, um, I, was, I was talking to one, one of the UN's like, lead like, entomologists about that. And I, I jokingly, but you can't just joke with academics sometimes, I was like, why don't we just get a big net and catch all of them? <laughs> He's like, Joseph, it's like the size of Netherlands or New Jersey, this swarm. Like, what kind of net? And I'm like, oh, no, I was just joking. But 
There must be innovative ways where instead of spraying pesticides and making them inedible, that we can safely harvest them. Hmm. And I want to try to conceive of this idea and project where locusts by nature are solitary creatures, solitary animals. The reason why they swarm is when resources become scarce and they congregate near a water source or something. And when their legs like rub up against each other, they become gregarious. Mm. Uh, or I guess another way to say they, they become very uh, horny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gregarious, I think it's a more <laughs> colloquial, uh, like a academic term, I guess, if you will. And so they start swarming and they create this massive destruction. Now, when I think about grasshoppers and, and how they rub their, their wings for mating calls, like, I wonder if there's a way where we can create sounds that will direct the locusts to an area where they could safely be harvested, right? And I just want to think of these like sort of ideas and create a forum and work with entomologists and musicians and just people in an interdisciplinary manner that can go like, you know what, let's, let's research if that is possible. Can we get like big sonic speakers that will like direct the locusts in a manner that, that we can then like safely collect them to mitigate the damage of these like massive swarms? Is that possible? I don't, I don't know. It's the first time I'm publicly talking about this idea outside of like amongst like a, like a fireside chat with like my friends actually. Okay, I was wondering like, is that community happening already? But we... I, I'm in constant communications. I, it's so fascinating. Prior to my work with Brooklyn Bugs starting five years ago, I, I did not know a single entomologist. Mm. And now on my speed dial, I have like entomologists like, uh, you know, that are like, that I speak with on a weekly basis that have become like really great friends of mine. And also that they're just, um, you know, we just love talking about bugs. They're, they're fascinated by my curiosity of all things insects now. And knowing that, the purpose and intention behind it, if they could help me to like create the rubric for how we can like shift and really push this institutionally, like globally, generationally, they're so behind it. And so it, it, it's just been really, really fascinating. And just like, I, I'm so grateful for how patient people have been with me in teaching me about insects and and, and it's been really a, a, a great part of my, the, dare I say, the, a great part of the success I've, that I've been able to enjoy has been really because of how, um, how willing a lot of these entomologists have been to like speak with me at length and patiently correct me when I make the same mistake over and over. And they would just kind of like very patiently like kind of like walk me through and, and help me to understand more about the physiology of insects and like, and, and just appreciate them more so I can like better utilize them in my, in my own, uh, in my own craft as a chef. I know you've talked about it at length, probably for like a year and a half now. Um, the Brudex, the cicadas, um, but if if you could, you see the smile on my face. It still doesn't go away <laughs> okay. when someone asks me about Brudex because it is like 
one, it has been one of the greatest and most awesome experiences of my life to, to work with, with Brudax Cicadas. Okay, so I would love if, if you could talk about that a bit. And also I was thinking, I, I think they come every 17 years. Okay, so in my mind as I was preparing for this, I'm like, well, there's no way 17 years ago he was cooking with them and like knew that he could make something like delicious out of them. So if you don't mind talking about them and then, but then also talking about like sort of how you went about, I guess, experimenting and turning them into something delicious without the prior experience of working with them. Yeah. So a quick rundown on, on so scientifically, the, the, it's brew 10. Because the X is a number, and it, it, it numbers like the different brood. Mm. I just like to say brood X. It's just a lot cooler to me to say brood X <laughs> and brood 10. One. So, yes, they were, they've been living underground for 17 years. And this life cycle of the, of the magic cicada, periodical cicadas, has been going on for over a million years. And they live underground and... People presume that they're hibernating or insects are in a diurnal phase. They're not. They're simply slowly eating plant and tree xylem. It's not a very nutritious form of, of, of the plant to eat, but it allows for them for their slow growth. At least that's like a hypothesis. They, mm. they don't even eat the most nutri- nutrient-dense form of food down there because then they, maybe they would only live a few years before they're ready to like emerge. So they're just down there chilling out in darkness, in social isolation, slowly sucking on plant trees island. Wow. And somehow, by some miracle, after 17 years, when the ground temperature hits exactly 64 degrees, hundreds of billions, if not a trillion plus of these cicada nymphs will emerge in mass at the same time. What an incredible wonder of nature. Yeah. Once they emerge, they then like go through their last instar and metamorphosize from the cicada nymph and become an adult. And their strategy, uh, their survival strategy is predator satiation. They come out in such large numbers that they're willing to sacrifice the many to the birds, to the reptiles, to the humans, whoever wants to eat them. But they come out in such overwhelming numbers that they will still live and to see the next food emerge. Mm. And so this alone in and of itself was this like incredible wonder of nature. And so... And brood X happens to be the largest brood of, of periodical cicadas that emerge. So already, in and of itself, they're going to get a lot of press around the world. It's like, whoa, insects after 17 years are going to emerge. That's crazy. And when I first started getting phone calls about the brood X and like, can we eat them? I was like, uh, yes, obviously, yes, you certainly can eat them. They're, they're safe to eat as you collect them from a responsible area. And what I found really fascinating was that even though I had never cooked with them, a lot of publications wanted to be the first to print. And I was like, you know, if you wait a few weeks, I'm going to actually collect them and cook with them. No, 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 no. We want to we write the story now before it happens. Mm. 
And so I just gave the best knowledge that I had based on my work with other insects and the physiology and the conversations with entomologists. Like I started calling every single entomologist I knew and I would speed dial them and I was nagging so many of them to tell me as much as they possibly could about the cicadas. And then I would have more questions like, then I would sit on like our hour to hour phone call I'd sit on the information and come up with like new questions because I'd, I'd write and contemplate ideas about what it is, how I'm gonna integrate with my food. Come and I would call them again and I'd be like pestering them like, when can we go start hunting cicadas? And, and so it was just a really fascinating moment in my life where for a, a two month period, I essentially dropped almost everything in my life uh, except for the express sole purpose of collecting, researching, and working with cicadas and being in press and interviews and, and just really sharing this. And it was so fascinating to discover the interest and the manner of what we did with our work that it grew so that these big publications weren't adding us at the end of their, their feature on cicadas. They were writing features about eating cicadas, why we should eat insects, and sharing that narrative. And so we found ourselves in the most incredible and meaningful press around the world for a two month time period. And so you can imagine like for a lot of people, like you get like one big feature in like, you know, in, in a major publication. That's like, that's awesome. I'm so, I'm so proud and happy of this. And for me to be in that position for a two month time period, like how incredibly humbling, how incredibly validating to, to, to have that. And for me to have the strength to deal with the scrutiny that comes along with that attention, um, I, it's something that I just am so grateful, one, to my family for being so incredibly supportive and, and encouraging, and also to my inner circle of friends who, who just allow the space for me to share. And, you know, sometimes as this all happens, I get so excited I need to temper my enthusiasm sometimes publicly because I don't want to sound like a narcissist or like I'm bragging too much or whatever it is. And I need to find the right tone because my this is much bigger than me. But it was like, wow, I'm just exploding with excitement. And I'm sure there's like a, uh, like a fatigue that people get where it's like another piece. And, and so I have no expectations of like anybody to like follow what I do or like know everything that I post about it or whatever. And so for me, I, I just try to like, ex I've learned to accept these things graciously and gracefully to feel like I'm worthy. Honestly, try my best, try so hard. And so to find that space and share it and integrate this feeling of worthiness of finding something in your life for which you have great conviction. I love sharing this message with people, particularly with my college students when I tour. When I used to tour at colleges, hopefully we'll see that return 
post-COVID or when that's safe again. Um, but these are like the, some of the fundamental things I'm like so, so glad that I'm able to share beyond the idea of eating insects as like the only thing to, of which I, that people can expect more to hear more from me than just the idea of sustainability. Yeah, and I think you use social media as a tool really well, uh, at least for me. I mean, I'm going to link to everything and whatever player people are listening to this in, and they know that they can just directly click on the links that I give you. Um, but you do a great job of, like, curating almost, like, uh, and, and tagging like-minded people and companies. I know that you guys sell your own products on your website, but uh, for things that you don't have, people can go to your Instagram, I think, is a really good way to find out more about like-minded people and companies and people who are working sort of like within your orbit. Um, and like you mentioned, like incredibly like article after article, like platform after platform covering you and the work that you're doing. Like I mentioned at the outset, that's been really exciting for me to watch. Um, and just, I just, again, I think generally like watching someone's hard work pay off is, is deeply inspiring. Uh, what can we tease people with maybe about like what might be happening and, and related projects in, in the near future once they do start following you? Well, you know, I haven't actually officially made the announcement yet, but I, I'm making it this week. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled that this year uh, South by Southwest uh, officially accepted me as a, as a moderator for a panel on mainstream the psychology behind Insect, insect cuisine, that I made the announcement for already, actually. But I've also been, just been, uh, I, I'm also now the culinary director for the future of food at South by Southwest. And so it's really just incredible. And I'm so grateful to be in a position where I'm not just talking about bugs, but to be able to talk about things that are like really meaningful in the, in the, future food space at a forum like South by Southwest. Um, I'm also the culinary director for Insects to Feed the World Conference, which is a biannual conference that came out of the FAO's report. And so I'm really thrilled to that. That conference is going to be in June in Quebec City. And I'm thrilled to be the culinary director for that as well. And um, I'm now in the preliminary stages of talking with the ESA, the Entomological Society of America, but how we can provide the assets, the tools, and the language for entomologists to successfully be able to integrate insect protein into their diets. Because they all know that it's sustainable. Like all the entomologists at the conference, they know, oh yeah, it's sustainable. But they don't know exactly how to successfully actually integrate it into their diets. And that's what we're setting out to do this year. Um, I am so, so thrilled. I have a wonderful relationship with Atlas Obscura, and we're, this week we're just finishing my four-week cooking course with them, and so I'm so excited that it went so exceedingly well. We're all like glowing from like in, in excitement, and and so we added a lecture-only series in February, and I just think that people need to know more. And so this is a very low ticket price. We offer scholarships for both the course, cooking courses and the lectures as well. Um, and I love just like the way that we're able to approach this educationally and have tiered tickets for people that want to spend $25 for the lecture or $40 to pay it forward. 
We added another spring cooking session as well. So it's just like, I, I, I just feel like more and more opportunities keep coming. And there are some, there are some other things that are in development that I can't speak of yet because uh, we have to wait for the, the, the proper time to release this sort of information. But I love that, again, like something I mentioned before that we're in the preliminary stages of discussing developing curriculum for New York City's Department of Education their STEM program, and also in the preliminary stages also with 4-H. And so we're just finding more and more ways to integrate what we're doing and successfully introduce it to more and more people on a bigger scale. Well, I will be following along as I have been. Uh, again, it's really exciting. I'm learning a lot. Um, it, this is a, a real pleasure for me to get to do. People keep bucket lists in their head, right, of like, things they want to do and places they want to go before they pass. I have like my, my podcast bucket list before uh, the next form of media comes and eats up this one. And for a long time, I've wanted to talk to someone about this subject. Uh, it's hard to find people who can do so in the way that you can. Um, both because I, I think it's interesting and unique and I'm trying to cover as many topics as possible, but also because I, I, I think I get your mission and uh, I appreciate it and, and endorse it. Um, I think you know maybe Bill Schindler. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've had him on a couple times, and like I'm, I'm really into the stuff that he's doing, so to be able to have him on was uh, for a second time recently was really uh, a privilege. Uh, and in my small way, I'm humbled by that, but to be able to sit with you and to, to share your message and to share your story makes me so happy. Um, so thank you so much for, for having me, a stranger in your home, and for, for chatting with me. Tim, thank you so much. I am so grateful to be able to share my work and life stories with your audience. And every opportunity that we get, we genuinely just embrace wholeheartedly. You've been so amazing and patient. We weathered the storm, pre-COVID <laughs> conversations to end up here now. I, I really couldn't be more thankful and happy. Um, I, I do actually have uh, a grasshopper, mealworm, cricket powder, chocolate chip cookie, if you're interested in having a sample of, of, of the said cookie. That sounds awesome. So this is what we'll do. Um, I'll maybe take a video of that with my phone or I've got my other camera here. Okay. So I'll tell people to, to head on over to my Instagram maybe to yeah, see that. Okay, yeah. Because that would good. be awesome. All right, yeah. cool. Cheers, Joseph. All right. Hey, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 259 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Joseph. I've been wanting to have him on here forever, and I finally did it. And I got to hang out with him at his house and try some chocolate chip cookies that he made that have mealworms and cricket flour. And they were awesome. Really delicious. So I'm excited to try some new things and maybe get some food with him. And now I know him. And that always makes me excited when I can continue a relationship and a friendship with a guest. All right, Voyagers, that is it for now. I will sign off here. And as always, I will say, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon. <laughs>